Hello, everybody. I'm J.D. Lopez, the host of Left Hand Right Brain. It's a free-flowing, wide-ranging conversation that I have with artists doing interesting and creative things here in Denver and beyond. We talk about their personal stories, break down their creative process, and what motivates them. Spoiler alert, it's mostly spite. We talk about all these things and more while kicking back, cracking wise, and always having a good time. You can find old episodes and everything you need to know at lefthandrightbrainpod.com. You have all made it to the dance. Coming to you from the X Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 146. Your host, John X. Thanks for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And man, what a show coming up. What a show. A show that I didn't think I was ever going to do. I kind of wanted to. But the opportunity did not seem imminent. And my guest this week is a man who has an impressive career that dates back to long before I was born. A man with a fascinating story and married an absolutely wonderful woman about 10 years before I was born. I'm talking, of course, about my father, Jack Ekstrom. He is my guest on episode 146 of the John of All Trades podcast. Now, when I say I didn't think this show was going to happen... And we talk about this at the beginning of this week's episode. It's because my dad told me that he wasn't going to listen to my show when I told him that I was starting it. And I wondered why, and I thought, okay, that's kind of a weird thing to say to your son, but okay. And after I ask him about it, he gets into it, and, you know, I it makes sense to me. Like, I get it, but given everything that he's accomplished, everything that he's done, given our personal dynamic, which, since we worked in the same industry for so long... I think was mystifying to people. I don't think people got it. I don't think people could figure us out, which some of that's by design. I mean, it's one of those things where people are going to have assumptions no matter what. And that's fine. They're welcome to have those assumptions. But if you know that going in, you know there's an opportunity there to subvert expectations or to have some fun, to be a little playful with it. Because honest to God, I have no idea what people think or what they perceive of how my dad and I coexist in the same industry. And quite frankly, I really don't care. Which is another killer thing to have in your toolbox, when you just don't care. When you know your relationship is solid. When you know where you both stand, but no one else does. Now, granted, I don't think it was ever that intentional, at least on my part, and I don't think for my dad's part, we were never that craven about it. But it's kind of a fun thing to have in your hip pocket when you're looking to subvert expectations with people. Now, we've always been very close. I love my dad. We get along great. At the beginning of this episode, we're talking about baseball. We've always been able to talk about baseball. And quite frankly, we've always been able to talk about pretty much everything. It's one of my favorite things about my relationship with my dad. And so knowing what I know about how our relationship has unfolded over my life, I wasn't afraid to ask him some pointed questions. Some things I've always wanted to know about him. The way that he chooses to look at the world and the way that he chooses to interact in it. I'm a very different person than him in a lot of ways. We're very similar in many ways, but we're also very different from one another. So it was a great opportunity to ask him some of the things I've always wanted to ask him, given this format. And I asked him, I said, is there anything you don't want me to ask you? And he said, no, this is your show. Do what you want. And I go, okay, you know what? 
like I do with all of my interviews, I'm going to rise to the occasion. And I'm not going to give him a bunch of softball. I'm not going to miss an opportunity here to do something that's noteworthy, something that's worthwhile, something that has value that extends beyond the two of us. And that's what I did, and I'm very proud of this week's show. And I'm extremely pleased to bring it to you. Because what a great opportunity, first of all, to get to know your dad as an adult. It's something he said he never got to do. His dad died when he was in high school. My heart breaks for that. Because getting to know my dad as an adult is fantastic. Secondly, we've worked in the same industry for a long time. And to get to do that is a huge privilege. To get to see him have the success that he's had. And to get to follow that, but carve my own path at the same time, it's an amazing opportunity. And finally, to get to sit down with him in this journalistic setting that I have and talk about the ways in which we've worked together the ways in which we've chosen to distance ourselves from one another, and to shed some light on this relationship that a lot of people either don't understand, misunderstand, or just plain curious about. So now that we're both sort of out of our corporate setting, we can take the wall down a little bit. And I think that'll be a lot of fun. If you know me, if you know him, if you know us together, I think you'll enjoy this episode very much. Even if you don't know us, getting to look through the keyhole. I mean, I talk about that all the time on this show is something that is, and what I think you'll see is a closeness, a respect, a camaraderie, and just a very strong father-son relationship. So what a thrill. The reason I'm doing it now is his birthday is coming up a few days after this episode airs. So happy birthday to you, old man. Thanks for letting me do this. Thanks for being a part of my show. Thanks for being a part of something that I've created and supporting me along the way by sending me some great guests and now being on the show yourself. So I hope I've done you proud and I can't wait for many more years together. So happy birthday to you. Let's get to this week's episode. No plugs here in the intro. It's episode 146 of the John of All Trades podcast. Jack Ekstrom is my guest. He's my father. He's got an impressive career. We talk about it all and his episode starts right now. It doesn't feel the same to me in any way, shape, or form. Um, it's very much like when the Broncos won their first Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, this, like 98. This city was so tense and hyped, and you could see the whites of everyone's eyes. Um, <laughs> and it's very it was very much like running into a cubs fan anywhere last year they they were blinking very fast right and their heart rate was up around 300 or so uh, <laughs> just resting heart rate ju- just their resting heart rate and you know they they'd get up in the morning and they already knew the score from last night right. but they couldn't wait to dissect the box score <laughs> to see who was batting what and what was the lead up what was the leadoff hitter going to going to do and what was his average against whoever was starting tonight he had these guys doing this unbelievable research for for to no purpose right. other than to, other than to try to calm the turmoil the volcano that was brewing inside them well it's funny when they won i i mean i was happy i was thrilled cuz i mean you blessed and cursed me with cub fandom <laughs> growing up yes i did <laughs> but i was more happy for you than i was happy for any other aspect of oh that. thanks uh i was more happy for me too <laughs> um, the, 
my my friend who I actually he and I were all about the Cubs, and it started when I was seven years old. <clears throat> he was five, and we had moved to this new house, and he was my next door neighbor. And uh, he said, "You're a Cubs fan, right?" Well, I wanted a new friend because I didn't know anybody there. I go, "Yeah, yeah, sure I am," and I didn't know anything about it. And I I had turned on the television, believe it or not, we had a television, the Cubs games were broadcast, and my grandfather, uh, who was actually kind of a nasty man, uh, called the Cubs a bunch of shoemakers. <laughs> um, you know, they used to be good when they had Kai Kai Kyler and Rig Stevenson and, and those guys. These guys are terrible. Hank Sauer, the mayor of Wrigley Field. Yeah, sure. And so he's running down all of the guys that I'm trying to make friends with my next-door neighbor. And um, so we rapidly got completely wrapped up in the entire Chicago Cubs scene. In fact, we worked at, uh, at Wrigley Field going down to set up the chairs. At how old? I started doing that when I was 11. <laughs> they just they let 11-year-old kids come in? and did, Oh, they had kids younger than us. Did they pay you? No. Okay. No. What I, what I got to do was make my lunch and – I had a dollar allowance at the time, and it was 25 cents to go down on the bus and the L and get off at Addison Street. A dollar allowance paid how frequently? Once a week. Okay. So Righteous bucks. Half of that, yeah. I was rolling in. Yeah, living large. Yeah. Uh, living the dream. We'd spend 50 cents to go down there, and uh, they'd let you in the pass gate, which is right across the street from the um, uh, fire station. And there would be like maybe 10 of us, okay. kids. And so you'd walk, you'd work your way around the park, uh, passing chairs down like a bucket brigade. <laughs> and then when that was over, they'd kind of herd you all together and take you up into the Andy Frayne Usher's dressing room, which is what the Cubs had at the time. And you'd wait until the gates opened at 11 o'clock and people came pouring in all three or 400 of them. <laughs> Were the Cubs no good back then? Oh, they were terrible. So this was like in the late... They were absolutely terrible. This was like the late 50s? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Uh, I remember a quote from Don Hoke. Uh, This is another another story, but uh, about being traded from the Dodgers to the Cubs. And the same thing happened to Eddie Mixis. Uh, These are... Long forgotten ball players. Well, no, Don Hoke, I remember as a punchline to a joke in City Slickers. Ah. You remember that? Like, I don't know who played third base for Pittsburgh in 1960. Well, it was Don Hoke. And all three of them go, yeah. Don Hoke. <laughs> That's right. It was Don Hoke. Um, well, he had, he had been on the Cubs, and before that he'd been on the Dodgers. And his his disappointment about being traded there, because the, the Cubs clubhouse only had hooks. Mm-hmm. They didn't even have lockers. They just had hooks. <laughs> that stupid little locker room they had down the left field line where they had the door that was right by the 353 sign. Um, anyway, we, w- we would um, uh, be in the Andy Frey and Usher's dressing room, and they'd open the gates, and we'd go out in right field, right over the 368 sign, and we'd catch batting practice home runs. Yeah. Uh, so we got our baseballs that we would play sandlot ball with, and uh, uh, the whole thing cost 50 cents. <laughs> and then we'd hang around afterwards and get autographs, where I first got Ernie Banks. Uh, the day he hit a game-winning home run. When did he join the Cubs? Uh, end of 1953. Okay. He had been with the Kansas City Monarchs. He The Cubs bought his contract thanks to Buck O'Neill. 
and uh, brought him up. And then he's, his first full season was 54. was my idol. Uh, was a great ball player, great man. Didn't have a very successful family life, but uh. City loved him. All of baseball loved him. And, of course, in true Cub fashion, he died the year before they won the World Series. Of course. To expect anything different, I think, would run counter to your instincts as a Cub fan. To Exactly. Um, you expect the worst, and you get even worse than that. <laughs> All right. Well, this is Jack Ekstrom, my father, who I didn't know that we would ever end up doing this because I'm like three and a half years into the show, and you just recently started listening to it. I did. And it was funny when I started it, you told me, you're like, I, I am intentionally not going to listen. And I said, okay, why? And what was your rationale? I wanted to stay out of the way. I, I tend to seriously unintentionally dominate or take over or direct as I was a television director. And <laughs> I was a, um, creator of all the whiting petroleum videos, I, I tend to try to take charge. And this is something that you own. Um, and I did not want to, uh, in any way influence it, uh, with my, you know, by polluting it with my particular views of anything. I just wanted to leave you alone because I thought that would probably be the most productive thing, but I was inexorably drawn to it when you started interviewing people that I know and I wanted to hear how it was going. Well, and it's funny, you filtered guests my way, like Tim Lawler and Patty Limerick and Rusty Butler. I mean, so, I mean, to that end, it was really, really helpful, but I thought he's not going to hear these. <laughs> well, actually I did. I just uh, was on the sly listening. And of course your mother listens and has provided some feedback and input. Um, her take is generally somewhat different from mine well sure but uh we are two different people despite being married uh, for 46 years so that's not unexpected in any way no uh, but it was funny to me because i thought and i remember one thing you said was everyone's a critic and i don't want to be a critic and i thought that's true everyone is but at this point in my life i think i'm comfortable enough in who i am what i do and my skill set to where any criticism i'm not going to take as sort of an existential problem. You know what I mean? I understand that, but that doesn't mean that I'm comfortable being a critic. I gotcha. Uh, because I'm not. <laughs> when we did this uh, KFKA spot in uh, Greeley together, which oh, was, yeah, that was fun. a lot of fun, you got in a really good line at me, and I'm reluctant to get in lines on you because <laughs> it's, you know, as a father, that's not what you do. Well... To your not, son, although some do, oh, so, yeah, some do. I, in fact, I knew one pretty well. I, I had one, <laughs> um, but uh, the notion of actually being able to deal with each other on equal footing is unusual um, and welcome, and I think it's something that not a lot of fathers and sons share. I particularly enjoy being one up, especially by you. Uh, <laughs> Because it just strikes me as funny, and I'm always ready to laugh, especially at myself. Probably one of the greatest 
secrets, if you will, or unknowns about me is that my greatest pleasure is in self-deprecating humor uh, because to me that's the funniest. If It kind of means you know yourself. Yeah. And knowing yourself is a mixed blessing because mm -hmm. you know all the parts and some of them are not as attractive as others. But right. uh, uh, anyway, making fun of yourself is, is a fine art. I enjoy it. If you remember from my retirement party, we, I, t I think I did a pretty good job of setting everybody up to look good except me. <laughs> yeah, that it was, and it was interesting too because the traditional form and narrative of a retirement party is people get up and say nice things about you. They do tributes, but you and you, you cultivated this very carefully curated guest list where you paid tribute to everyone else, which I thought was an, a very interesting inversion of form. And I think what's amusing to me, and we've talked about this a little bit, and it's one of the reasons we're doing this, is given that we work and have worked in the same industry for a while and that we've been in a similar orbit, I think our relationship is vexing to a number of people, <laughs> to our colleagues. Oh, yeah, it is. I, I don't think they get it. And one of my, and I mean, I, I almost hate to divulge this, but one of my favorite things professionally and to a lesser extent personally is always keep them guessing, you know, always. <laughs> and if they don't have a good handle on you, you set yourself up to surprise people. And so the fact that we would intersect and I, I remember one of the very first events we were at together where we were both sort of professionals, I was working at the lobbying firm. And I think Fulbright and Jaworski was opening a new office. Yes. And, and someone asked you where I was because I was at that party. And you said, I don't know. He's off work in the room somewhere. <laughs> Which, of course, you were. I can see it in people's eyes. Um, I had a little episode last night that was kind of funny. Uh, we were out in a social situation. But the the mindset is to always – keep them guessing and, and you can see it in their eyes when they're thinking what's he gonna do now <laughs> what's he wh what well i did this thing last night where good that surprised the people that were there and as i executed this i turned around and i feigned being a model walking down a runway with my <laughs> hand behind my head like a like a fashion model and it just broke up yeah the assemblage it was kind of fun because the that's some of the best things that you can do is you you never know and you'd be in a business meeting like i used to be at, at not my last employer but one before that and we'd have these weekly meetings and people would report on what was going on and the room would get real quiet when the boss would go what's new in government affairs and you could you could hear this collective intake <laughs> of air waiting for the punchline and uh, you tried never to, to disappoint. Right. In terms of being in the same orbit, you know, working together. And I, I remember at that lobbying firm and this ended up making its way back to you, which I found amusing. We were having this big offsite meeting, you know, our leadership was putting together this big plan. There was this huge grid with all these different tasks and I was largely going to be in charge of content. And, my boss turns to me, he's covered in flop sweat, like always. And, uh, 
he says, do you think you're going to be able to handle all that? And I, I turn and look at him and I had designs on leaving. So I just turn and I say, what if I say no? <laughs> and he and his his co-founder kind of looked at me and they didn't know what to make of it. And I thought, I think that's a perfectly valid question. Granted, kind of a strange one and a, and a weird thing to say to your boss. But I kind of put him on his heels, which was fun because he, he was not an easy man to do that with. But I bring that up because when I graduated grad school and I started looking for employment, I remember I, – and I go up and I talk to college kids a lot. And they, you know, everyone says, you got to network. You need to network. And the problem is no one tells you how to do that. And what I tell them is meet with anyone who is willing to meet with you. Go out and just talk to as many people as possible. Don't, don't be looking for a job. Don't, don't have that stench of desperation on you <laughs> because you know, you're, you're a young person. You, you don't know anything, and sometimes you don't know that you don't know anything. But just go in, be open, ask lots of questions. The right fit will reveal itself eventually. You have to be a little bit zen about it. Well, all of your contacts were in oil and gas. And so I was meeting with all these oil and gas guys. And when I was a kid, this might be instructive too. If you asked me what I thought I was going to be when I grew up, I would have said a professional baseball player, a professional basketball player, or whatever it is my dad does. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't have a real good handle on that. But lo and behold, my I stopped playing baseball. I chose swimming over that. And basketball I was never going to be tall enough and or fast enough or have enough fast twitch muscles. But lo and behold, I ended up doing whatever my dad did. <laughs> As I was sort of going through and meeting these folks, eventually you had to know I was going to land somewhere. My question is, was that difficult for you to navigate knowing that I would be in the same universe? And how did you manage your expectations and manage your behavior as a result of that, because it seems to me like it was a very careful and intentional choice. It was. It was totally natural because as you were evolving as as a student and in your intellect, it became very clear to me that you had the feel and the intuition for this. It's not – obviously, it's not everyone that can do this. In fact, it confuses most people. Yeah, even they, people who are in adjacent things. Like you'll get former news reporters or former legislators or whoever, and they come into this world and they go, whoa, this is way more overwhelming than it looks like from the outside. Uh, which we've heard from my replacement. <laughs> uh, but uh, in, in fact, I had a I had a news guy because I had, I had started out in television news. I had a news guy in Corpus Christi who interviewed me on air. And actually had me write the questions for him to ask. Uh, I've done that too, actually. It's always amusing when you get to do that. But when it was over, he said, how do I get out of this? How do I get into what you're doing? I I said, I can't stand this. And you understand that because it's it's a hideous life being a television news anchor because everybody has certain expectations of you and they're all wrong. Unless you have it in your bones. There are people who they just, they have that and that's where they thrive. It's the, it's the word Lucas effects. <laughs> uh, yes, they, they do. But um, uh, I knew from your curiosity and your somewhat sardonic sense of humor that it was an excellent fit because you have to you have to be a skeptic you have to be 
able to put yourself in the background, which you've been able to do, and you have to be knowledgeable. And above all, you have to do your homework. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you don't do your homework, you're dead. Because news people don't do their homework. Because other people that do this don't do their homework. The legislators don't. The regulators don't. Almost no one does their homework. And a lot of times it's not even malintent either. I, not, it's ignorance. And not necessarily. But the deeper you get into this business, the more complex it gets. Exactly. So it's hard to have mastery, especially if you're like a news person or a legislator. And you have this. You have health care. You have infrastructure. You have government funding. You have taxes, et cetera. And you typically have someone who has has been focused on themselves rather than on their messaging outward. So they start communicating about things they don't know, and they don't know what they don't know, which is always dangerous. People like you, I knew from the get-go that you were not afraid to acknowledge that you knew what you didn't know. Mm-hmm. That's key to success, to say, to be able to say, I don't know. I'm going to go find out. Or if somebody asks you, a media person asks you a question and you don't know, you'll say, I don't know. But the next time I see you or the next time you hear from me, you will have an answer. Yeah. And the ability to do that and the willingness to do that are what creates success in this part of the business. Okay. The question still stands. Knowing that I had an aptitude for it, it was a natural fit for you to introduce me to all these folks. And it, if I didn't have sort of the, the aptitude and the intuition for it, then naturally I would have gone elsewhere. But once I was in it and, you know, I was working for the lobbying firm and then I was working for MGA. And so I had some oil and gas contacts. We'd run, in, run into each other at industry events and stuff. And then once I started working for another company, was it difficult for you to balance your instincts as a father with sort of needing to keep sort of a a professional distance. It was especially difficult, especially since I knew what was happening in your career and what I knew about the political landscape in which we were both required to operate. It made it especially difficult for me because I was – at polar opposites with your employer. Right. And you were on something of a split stick because someone's paying your check. Someone's okay. someone's helping you make someone's not helping you. They're they're they are your living. And as I have disagreed with my employers over time, you walk a fine line and then add in the fact that the person that you disagree with <laughs> is providing a living for your offspring. And that makes it especially difficult and hard to be totally open. Mm-hmm. So there's an avoidance technique in there where I I tended to ignore your boss. You have you develop friends along the way and they those friendships evolve or erode depending on uh, how it goes. I have one specific friend who got into this after being in an environmental consultant, which, of course, is a, to me is a, um, a difficult place to make a living because it doesn't really produce anything except avoidance of lawsuits. 
and he's turned out to be one of my best friends and is a, is a very effective government affairs person because he has the background and the knowledge of how that particular community works. Sure. As far as you're concerned, it was very difficult for me because I perceived that you were being whipsawed and I couldn't really do anything about it. And no father, no honorable father, <laughs> wants to see his son or his daughter or his wife or any of his relatives be taken advantage of or be punished or be made a scapegoat. I had enough of that in my professional career. I didn't want to see it visited on you, too. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you didn't you didn't jump in and let me sort of navigate my own way. Um, because I think had the alternative unfolded, I don't know that I would have responded all that well to it because, I mean, you know, I tried like hell to, to carve my own path and I worked really, really hard to, I just differentiate myself because as you pointed out to me early on in my career, you cast a long shadow. You have a very impressive resume. You've, you're active in virtually every trade, every, you know, Western governors, Republican governors, uh, federal trades, local trades, regional trades. And so when people would meet me, they go, are you any relation to Jack? That's a question I get a lot. And, <laughs> and you would say? I'd say he's my father. Oh, okay. Well, good. And uh, and the the responses were always amusing because it ranged from playful, oh, I'm sorry, to uh, – <laughs> Familiar with that one, yeah. Yeah, too. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I know your dad. Your dad's a great guy. And I remember thinking, it's an interesting milieu that I work in because good, bad, or indifferent, there's almost a perception that I am going to have to accommodate and that I'm going to have to sort of reckon with. And how I do that will depend on who I'm talking to. But the fact that you sort of allowed me to fight my own battles and – I know you're not unfamiliar with this, but I cre <laughs> I've created a lot of my own problems along the way. <laughs> As have I for myself. I, I understand that too. And I, I know what that's like. So yeah. that's better left to uh, the creator <laughs> to solve them okay. rather than to uh, solve, try, have, try to solve someone else's problems. What, what was funny though is I, it took me a while to figure out who I was and how I was different. And one of the ways in which we differ is I don't so much care about policy. Like policy is not where the screw turns for me, digging into creating rules and things like that. I don't care. I'm, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I understand that. And of course, you know, that's where, that's my core. Yeah, that's where you make your it's, living. And writing my blog is how I get to expose the, the, uh, <laughs> the seamy underside of public <laughs> policy, of, right. of which it's broad, deep, and uh, uh, at great length, actually. There are years, decades of it. In fact, I wrote about one from the 80s here recently, and I'm one of those people that never gets over it. I never get over it. Um, Why do you feel compelled to carry the bag of rocks around forever? Why can't you just set it down? Um, it's the curse of a a memory that won't let you rest. The stuff keeps coming back. I mean, the psychologists say that you can, you can, you can unload these things. Well, if I unload it somewhere, I will trip over it 
inevitably, mm. and it'll just all start over again. So I think for me it's better to just carry it around and get used to it. Yeah, but it seems exhausting. Well, not if you have a lot of energy. <laughs> um, and I have a lot of energy for for opposition and enemies and opponents and uh, infidels, you know, unconvicted felons. <laughs> That's a, that's a term I haven't heard you use in some time. That's funny. But I, I think that's – that. I mean that's one of the key differences uh, between us as well. It is. is I mean that's, that's a choice in how you view and interact with the world and that's not my choice. That, that just – that doesn't work for me. It, it wears me down to the point where I become ineffective. The counterpoint is that I really love my friends. Yeah, I, no, I, you're fiercely loyal. I am fiercely loyal – to people that have befriended me, have been a have been a good boss, uh, of which I've had one in my entire life. Me too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, it's father and son. You yeah, know, there you go. There are, there are par- parallels. Why well, I'm better off working for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I I believe in people who are honest and especially honest with themselves. And I, I try very hard to advance those people as as best I can. Um, I've had some people that I've mentored. I've still got a couple that I think very, very deeply about and strongly about their value. And the the quality of character is everything to me. It means a lot to have these relationships because life is pretty barren without them. I know very much so. The thing that I think is tough when you are that fiercely loyal and you advocate on behalf of them, I, I've seen them not come through for you or do what we call in wrestling parlance a heel turn. And I think the risk of that is that that ends up stinging you very, very deeply compared to the relationships that some people have. Well, that's true, but there's always a risk. And if you don't put it out there, you don't ever get anything back. So it's a risk. Uh, the rewards for me have far outweighed those heel turns, and I know exactly what you mean. I mean, there was nothing more disappointing to a 10-year-old than watching Hulk Hogan start wearing black. <laughs> uh, and I understand that. And yeah, I've, I've, had that, I've had that happen to me. And it only – what it does for me is it just strengthens my resolve – Mm. to overcome that and to rise above it and to rise above them yeah. in particular. So, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but he didn't say it was all his. Uh, <laughs> he you know. doesn't have a monopoly on the vengeance uh, industry? No, I'm afraid not. Uh, let's go back to your retirement party, which, you know, you're you're an extraordinarily busy retired man. <laughs> which uh, is is not terribly surprising. I mean, you said yourself, you have plenty of energy for this type of thing. I do. And when you're engaging in issues of public policy, you need that much energy because it never, ever ends. Absolutely true. Um, I mean, I thought we were done with the with the frack fights in 2014. It's three years later. It's, I may be worse now. Well, it is worse now. The issues about oil and gas go back to OPEC and Arab oil embargo in the 70s and the Suez crisis, in fact, in 1956 when Nasser decided to close the Suez Canal and 
and oil shipments could not make it through the canal into into Europe. So it's it's always been something of a of a uh, tip of the spear in public policy, and people are very emotional about it on on both sides of it. I am obviously very emotional about it because I've written the uh, <laughs> reams about it. Um, but uh, the other side of the issue is is full of emotion as well. Unfortunately, there's not much logic in that side of the argument, but uh, uh, the people who oppose oil and gas somehow conveniently continue to use it at great amounts. And and uh, I'm sure at great cognitive dissonance. Exactly. Um, I, I have a, a relative who is is livid about oil and gas, but this relative continues to drive a car and continues to live in a house with natural gas heat and continues to do all of those things and go to heated swimming pools and all of that. Doesn't ride a bicycle, doesn't do any of those things, but yet is hating on oil and gas, but enjoying all of the, all of the benefits of it, much like the people of Boulder, Colorado, who got very upset when they thought they were going to lose their royalties um, and their, their uh, tax revenues from oil and gas development in the state. It's problematic, but it's the reality that we've lived with for decades and decades. I'm sure when Colonel Drake drilled as well in 1869, there were probably some Audubon bird watchers standing there going, ah, I don't like that. Right. Um, and they've been at it ever since. Well, so getting back to your retirement party, I impromptu got up and said a few remarks because I, I couldn't let the moment go without passing. You were not alone, by the way. I know, but I, I had the difference is I hadn't written anything. There were those who had written, and despite your expressed wishes not to have that happen, there were folks who felt compelled to do that anyway. So I said, "Okay, I'm not letting this moment pass." So what was remarkable to me was when I got up there, I said, "Let me give you some insight into uh, what it's like to have Jack as a father." And everyone sort of laughed and had this almost like, "Whoa, okay." And I think what was surprising to them is almost how that how they perceive that to be such a different shade of your personality. And so first a statement, then a question. When I started to understand sort of who you were as a professional, it was surprising to me because it stood in such stark contrast to who I knew you as a father. Now, I say that with the caveat, you do have a very commanding presence. And a very commanding voice. And some of my friends would remark to me, they're like, your dad's intimidating. Like, and I thought, really? <laughs> I go, okay, well, I guess compared to your, you know, dorky, nebbish father. <laughs> I, I suppose that's true in a vacuum, but that's not who I know. So in terms of who you are professionally versus who you were as a father, do those two people square up to you or are those two different personas? How, like, how do you view those two things or are they separate for you? Well, there's an overarching single mindset and there are two separate parts of that, if you will. The overarching mindset to me was to foster in you the belief in self and the core value of never surrendering and never giving up. This is not a plea for anything other than a little bit of understanding and insight. I didn't have it very easy as a a professional. 
I feel like I got I got knocked around quite a bit, and as I did in my early family life, and I resolved I would not give up because I wouldn't I just wouldn't let the bastards get me get me down, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted you to feel the same way with the added element of something that I did not enjoy as a as a boy or a young man, the element of trust from authority figures. So I've always had problems with authority figures my entire life. I didn't want that to happen to you unless they deserved it. <laughs> um, and I've had problems with bogus authority figures sure. going back sure. to at, as early as fifth grade. I understand that and know very well who that is. Uh, and that was richly deserved on her part, but that's another story. <laughs> the goal here was to help you understand that it's not fair out there, but it's fair here inside the four walls of our house. It's fair and it's honest and it's empowering and it's enduring. And like you've said to me from the get-go, I know that you've always had my back and I I do. Always, uh, Professionally and personally and I never had that, and that's that's not a good feeling, and I didn't want that to happen to you. So yeah, I have a yes, I have this overbearing, if you will, <laughs> probably. Well, um, your choice like, of words, yeah, not mine. Yeah, exactly. I I try to head off that the desire for others to dominate by doing it myself, mm. and I don't respond well to people who second guess. I don't respond well to people who are who. Um, a revisionist, and I didn't want you to either. So I tried to foster that in you, but at the same time, be nurturing and and be helpful. I I can't help but think about the little auto accident you had in Texas. Oh, where I backed into that car. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it was probably inevitable that something like that would happen because it happened to me. And the outcome that you experienced was 180 degrees from the outcome that I experienced. Mm. And I just thought that was a lot more productive way to handle things. Well, and I mean, it had to be heartening for you that I immediately just called you and told you what happened and came exactly. Clean. Like, I was just forthright, and because I mean that sucked. Like I, some of my friends down there were like, "Dude, no one's out here. You should just drive off. Like, there's no damage to your car." And I thought, ah, I'm not going to feel good about myself if I do that. It's the the cover up's always worse than the crime. Ask Richard Nixon exactly. <laughs> Um, I mean, it, it, it always is. And I mean, one thing I've always respected and I mean, we haven't talked about mom at all, but you, you guys were really a good yin and the yang for me, but there, you taught me a lot of self-reliance, a lot of self-determination and it just, I mean, her work ethic was crazy. I remember her sitting down at the dining room table on Sundays, planning her whole lesson, you know, for, exactly. for the week. And so, I mean, I had work ethic modeled. I, I got a both barrels. Uh, and so I thought, okay, well, and now I use that as the template for sort of how I'm successful. There are so few people out there willing to dig in and just dig the freaking ditch. Exactly. Uh, and if you can get there and people will say to you, what have you been doing? You go, oh, look behind me, man. Okay. Like I got this whole trench dug and they go, oh, wow, that's a lot of work. Yes, it is. And I, professionally, I think of I think of one thing. You were at your second to last gig, and uh, 
you showed me this. I think you had a performance review coming up, and you showed me all the things that you were involved in, all the projects that you had done. Yes. And I was at MGA at the time, and I thought, I can't, I, I couldn't come up with a fraction of this. The, uh, like, I'm not even close to this. But it was a recession, and you know, we didn't have that many clients and stuff. But I, I never forgot that because when I was at my last gig, I prepared one of those that ultimately went over like a fart in the wind. It didn't matter. I mean, I, I showed it to them, and they go, "Ah, oh, that's nice." I go, oh, great. Thank you. That's This was an excruciating year. Welcome to the club. Yeah. But I showed it to you and you go, my God. Like, And you were a corporate officer. You said, I, I'd be hard-pressed to come up with half of this. And I thought, wow. Then you've, <laughs> then you've done a good job of putting <laughs> this in me. Well, it's it's the curse that you have to live with. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, it's uh, – it, as you know from, from being exposed to all of the people that do other – things or do it another way this is much to be preferred yeah well i mean there and there's really no substitute for hard work it's blocking and tackling and if if you do that and if you continue to do that even when there's no paycheck involved mm -hmm. uh eventually there will be i learned that in my last year at my last employer where and i'm proud to say it i had the greatest success of my professional career and that ethic and that ability to be a critical thinker and to be self-critical was given to me by a guy who was my boss in 1975 and 76. Wow. And I learned then what I could be. I was floundering trying to figure out what it is I was missing and what I was missing, not the work, work ethic, but the ability to think critically about myself and to stand outside myself and look at what I was doing and find out what was wrong with it and fix it. And the ability to do that is difficult, but it made it a lot easier when someone actually taught me that. I had a great teacher, and so I have to correct that and say I had two good bosses, not just one. Yeah. Because he, he was great and an incredibly wise and helpful, actually, philosopher of of all things uh, of a different political stripe was this at nine news no this was at communications publishing corporation okay. one of the things that doesn't show up on my cv because it's too far back <laughs> too many entries like so many jobs i could not hold uh it's <laughs> way down the list but he was a terrific guy i still see him occasionally and i told him how much i appreciated that and he kind of looked at me with a quizzical look on his face. He goes, well, you're welcome. Good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's remarkable. I ran into – because my first job was at Koga. I ran into Schnocky a few years ago up in Wyoming. We were both in Casper for some – I don't know, some whatever. And I told him how much I appreciated him taking a chance on me. And, it, I mean, it was just admin. I was answering the phone and getting the mail and sorting through spreadsheets and stuff. It was not glamorous work, but – I was incredibly grateful because I was a foot in the door and being at the time when he hired me, I was 24 years old. Yes. And so knowing nothing, I'm over educated and underskilled, but the fact that he showed some faith, he said, well, you really showed me some work ethic, uh, which was good. And you kept asking for more work. And he said, so I was happy to do it. And guys, your age are the future of the industry. It's not guys my age. So, you got to cultivate talent. And I remember walking away and I was sort of moved by 
almost how rote his response was because I thought th- this is almost just de rigueur for him, you know, I, and the fact that that's the way that he's wired and that there are people in this industry wired that way that just have a desire to pay it forward. When you set me up with all those interviews after grad school, I always said, how can I like, what can I do? I'm taking time away from y- your day and you have so much to do and blah, blah, blah. And I was really insecure about it. They said, don't worry about it. Just pay it forward. At some point, you'll be in my seat and there will be a kid coming out of college who wants the same thing. Give him your time. That's exactly right. So, and, and paying it forward is 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 super critical in oil and gas because you have a limited pool from which to draw. And so when you find someone in that pool, it's time to pay it forward because you won't get a lot of them coming your way. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's very strange. What is something – so, I mean, you've been in this business now for 35-plus years? Well, 41. 41? Not to be too exact. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I didn't realize it had been that long – or it was that far in advance of when I was born that you had left the news station. But so 41 years, and you've made a lot of contacts in this industry, and I imagine – Many of those people are listening now. What is something about you that would surprise them? Uh, probably how emotional I am. I, I, I'm viewed typically, I think, <laughs> comment on how people view me. I don't, that's a real reach, but probably viewed as something of a, a curmudgeon and a stoic and something of a hard guy, I guess. And that's probably a veneer that has worked to fend off people that I did not wish to in, engage with. Is is that an intentionally crafted persona, do you yes. think? Yes. But the the soft underbelly is uh probably pretty emotional. I I I grieve when my friends are hurt. I grieved when a really grieved when a friend of mine who I think very highly of uh, was transferred to Houston, and I knew I wouldn't see him yeah. uh, very often. I I grieved when one of my people I was mentoring was going through a great deal of pain and wondering if the life being led was going to end up anywhere productive. And uh, another one who was at a television station where they were getting treated, mistreated, I could relate to that because my experience here in Denver at what was then ABC was was hideous. Something of a pawn in a much larger power game, which I had no knowledge of or under possibility right. to understand it, but still and no agency in and and no exactly no agency. So those affect me deeply, and combine that with my innate sense of loyalty to the people that in my perception, do right and think right is probably a surprise to most people. Most people are also surprised when they find out that I was in the in the military. I got drafted, and I hated it. I was a pretty good soldier, but the happiest day of my life was the day that you were born. The second happiest day of my life, a very close second, was the day I got married. But a pretty close third was the day I got out of the Army. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was not. I was not a happy uh, uniform wear. But um, you looked at the clock, right, when you were signing your discharge papers, right? Yes, I did. What time was it? 
It was one fourteen in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, That's the other thing people, I'm sure they know about you, is your absolute steel trap of a memory, which is something that I've been blessed and cursed with as well. And it, it is both a blessing and a curse. The, remembering the happy times in their greatest detail, like the case of beer that I bought for the guys in the orderly room as I was going to drive home. And we sat on the loading dock at the unit in Edgewood Arsenal. Was this in Maryland? This was in Maryland and cracked a beer and toasted the fact that I was out of there was indeed a happy moment. And I I remember. What kind of beer was it? uh, Actually, it was really unfortunate because it was Schaefer's and it was really awful. Just swill, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Well, the the ad campaign was Schaefer's is the one beer to have when you're having more than one. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I don't think you could get away with that ad anymore. Uh, probably not. And it was definitely not the beer to have when you're having more than one because one was plenty. Uh, it was so awful. Um, but uh, I remember sitting there with Ruben Contreras and Jack Kleekamp, uh sitting on the loading dock saying goodbye and knowing I'd never have to set foot on there again, which I did not. It's a happy day, but. Those kinds of things are the curse and the blessing of a photographic memory. You've got it, and you're stuck with it. And you can remember the sins visited upon you by great and small, mm. unfortunately. Yeah. That's tough. Uh, I, I do the same thing. Sometimes I'll, I'll be driving, and I'll think of something that happened you know, 15 years ago, and I'll get all fired up about it. And then all I'm thinking is, what the hell am I doing? Why? Like, just stop. Drive the car. (laughs) (laughs) Drive the car. Turn turn up the radio. Just do something. Uh, Don't don't dwell in this. It's hard to find the off switch. It can be. Uh, I've I I feel like I've watched you for long enough to where I've had to make it a learned skill because I find it much happier if I can, if not turn it off, turn it down. Well, I've managed, I think, to turn down some of it. When people misbehave, generally it's because they they get cornered, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a, it's a mode of self preservation. They they somehow get themselves into a box that they shouldn't be in, and unfortunately, the advantage they take of you is the avenue out of that box, and. Unfortunately for you, you you have nothing to do with the box, but right. um, you're the vehicle, and you you try not to try not to let that happen. I so. saw this thing once that said, "Everyone is fighting some battle you know nothing about." So that's right. Be kind always. That's right. Everybody is, and uh, life is a struggle for for a lot of people. I think you and I have had great advantage, and try to use it for good, and try to be honest with each other most important to be honest with ourselves to that mm-hmm. end, to that end do you looking back on this impressive career and cv that you have and given that you're prone to carry around this bag of rocks do you have uh, any regrets that gnaw at you is, is there anything yeah, top of mind yes uh the indiscretions that come with an experience where mm-hmm. You actually believe that as a 24-year-old, a 26-year-old, 28-year-old, the full expression of your emotions and your ideas is a good idea Mm -hmm. um, to people who are 
decades your senior. That's never a good idea. And I learned that the hard way. Uh, I regret doing that. I don't regret the the sentiment from which those actions sprung. Mm. But when you learn that experience is a great teacher, it comes from the experience of tripping over yourself. While your intentions are good, again, the vehicle that you choose is probably not the most effective. When, when you're dealing with people who are much longer in the tooth than you are, uh, you're essentially bringing a pop gun to a to a gunfight, <laughs> and you don't know it. Right. Your your pop gun looks pretty good to you. Mm. Unfortunately, it's not. It reminds me a little bit. I'll, I'll do this quickly. Of a sustainability seminar I did at my alma mater, where I had this rather dark uh, young man sitting close to the front who was scowling the entire time I was presenting, and he was angry about something, and he decided to confront me about something that he had no business confronting me about. And I used the opportunity not to put him down, which I had I been closer to his age, I might have. I used it as an instructional moment for him about the realities of the business world and the fact that he thought that an oil and gas company should be doing solar research was probably a disservice to the people who had put up the money for the company to be funded to do what it does. And he said, so you don't agree with solar research? I said, I believe totally in solar research or wind research. I just believe that companies that have that expertise are the ones who should be doing it. That's like asking uh, Boeing to learn how to dig ditches. I mean, right. they make airplanes. They should not. They should be doing what they do, just like oil and gas companies should be doing what they do. And you and I, son, should be doing what we do. We shouldn't be doing things that we're not equipped to do. Right. You mentioned one of them, and I'll give a quick plug here for the blog on policyworksamerica.com. But you chronicle this fight, uh, and I call it a fight, but that might be mischaracterizing it. Your company was getting taken to task by the EPA. Yes. And you chronicled the experience in a series of blog posts that uh, I thought was really, really insightful and really helpful. And you told me you count that as one of your greatest successes. I do. What other ones stand out for you? Wow. That was unexpected uh, question. I think I think I would say transformation of messaging in oil and gas. I created a, a video or vi series of videos for my most recent employer that took the investor, the viewer, the curious into every facet of oil and gas upstream operations from land acquisition to um, geology to the kinds of analysis geologists do of, of rocks to government affairs to how the hiring works to all of those things that the company did. And I, I put them on video and put them on the website so that anybody could see it. We have nothing to hide. And everybody has always asked why do oil and gas companies hide the ball? Well, we don't. Yeah. And we never did. Typically, oil and gas companies are run by either financial types or scientific types, engineering types. They're not run by communicators, clearly, because they've had such difficulty communicating. <laughs> um, across the board, from the largest of the majors, <coughs> excuse me, to the smallest of companies, 
And so getting my company used to being forthright, it's not that they weren't forthright and it's not that they were intentionally hiding anything. They just didn't have time for it because they were about the business of finding oil and gas. Or they didn't have the aptitude for it. Exactly. So the ability to sell that internally, the value of that, because investors want to know what it is they're buying, and this is a way to show it to them. Right. I view that as a as a huge step forward and the fact that my boss told me that other companies were jealous and angry at their communications people that they didn't think of it first. <laughs> so in a perverse way, I viewed that as a success because my sure. peers were getting punished for not doing it. <laughs> Well, I mean, sure, that's a perverse incentive, but uh, no less real an incentive. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Dad. This uh, this was enormously illuminating for me. And, well, good. And I suspect for others. Now's the time when we do plugs. <laughs> uh, All right. My guests plug uh, whatever they like, so uh, plug away. Where, where can people find you? They can find uh, this notorious or semi-notorious blog at policyworksamerica.com. It's spelled exactly the way it sounds. It's also on LinkedIn, and I frequently plug it on Facebook. Um, The the website itself is not on Facebook, but it is, I believe, on LinkedIn. It's simply www.policyworksamerica.com. And it's easy to get a hold of me if you have a desire to interact with me personally, uh, my email is jack at policyworksamerica.com. So that's my plug, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) And as we record this, uh, I think you're coming over to see your grandchildren tomorrow. I am. So I am, both of them. (laughs) That'll be really good. And uh, I could not have crafted a better father in a lab. (laughs) So... Thanks for being a great dad, uh, and congrats on a great career. Th- thanks for that, son. I appreciate it. And special thanks to your mother, who had a great deal to do with both of us being uh, successful and specifically with you being here. So, uh, <laughs> she, She's number one. Uh, she's fantastic. I love her. I love you. Continued success to you. Thanks, son. A pleasure doing this. And that wraps up episode 146 of the John of All Trades podcast with Jack Ekstrom, my father. Happy birthday to you. Thanks for being on the show. And if you're listening to this, check out his blog at policyworksamerica.com. It is a fantastic resource for insight into government, lobbyists, special interests, how natural resources get developed. He's got an impressive career, and he's distilling all this information into a series of great, great blog posts. You'll love it. Let's give some love to our sponsor, 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E. Anything you need to do on the web, whether you're building a community, whether you're doing some advertising, or if you're just plain old building a website, 4Degrees can help you do it better at a cost that is very reasonable and very attractive. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Deft is on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. We're also on the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, all under the same handle, J-O-A-T. Pod. Facebook is the only place for exclusive episode previews. Those go up on Monday. New episodes drop on Wednesday. You can find those at the John of All Trades homepage, J-O-N-of-all-trades.us. Also on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Just search John of All Trades. 
hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will be delivered straight to your listening device. You don't have to do any work. And as a thank you, please write me a review and leave me a rating. Got a brand new episode coming up next week. We're on a great roll here. So until I hear you then, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.